This morning is going to be a little bit different. If you have your Bible, or if there's a Bible in the basket and underneath the chair in front of you, you might want to pick it up and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then if you have your bulletin, you might want to just put it in there to mark the place. And then look up our scripture for the day, which was John 3, beginning at verse 13. And just put your finger there and hold that place. Now we're going to be kind of going back and forth between 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 1 and John 3 with a little detour into the first chapter of Ephesians. So we're going to be moving around the New Testament just a bit, but you'll see how it all fits together. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. And it says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So that first line there, verse 18, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What is Paul saying here in this first letter to the church in Corinth? What is the message about the cross? Who are those who are perishing And why do they think that the message of the cross is foolish? Now that's four questions generated out of just the first half of the first sentence of our text today. And I I really enjoy passages of scripture like this because there's so much that we can learn just in the questions that come out of reading them. So let's start with the question, what is the message about the cross? The message of the cross to which Paul refers 
is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which says that Christ was born of the Holy Spirit of God and the Virgin Mary. And is therefore fully God. And was therefore fully human. He was crucified for our transgressions. He was dead and buried. And he rose from the dead three days later. And he was seen by and interacted with many witnesses. And then he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And the Bible says that he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is the message about the cross. And that response to the question, what is the message about the cross, generates a question of its own. The question is, why did he do that? Now, you have your finger on John 3. Turn over there really quickly. Because the gospel according to John here in chapter 3 has the answer to that question, why did he do that? Beginning at verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So now we know what the message is, and we know why. The next question is, who are those who are perishing? So if you stay in John 3, and you look at the next verse, verse 18, here's the answer. Those who believe in him are not condemned, are not perishing. But those who do not believe are condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. See, Paul says that those who believe in the message about the cross are not condemned. Therefore, they are not those who are perishing. But those who do not believe in the message of the cross are condemned Already. Therefore they are perishing. Now take note. This doesn't say that they will perish. At some point in the future. But rather it says that. Even now right at this very moment. They are perishing. They are dead men walking. They are dead and simply have not fallen over yet. Why is this so? 
Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know we're moving around a lot, but it's interesting how the Bible has a tapestry and the thread of Christ runs throughout. One chapter, one verse supports the other. So why is this so? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's because they are foolish. What does the word foolish mean in this context? Well, if we look at the original Greek, the word for foolishness is based in the root word moriah. Or if we use it as an adjective, as in foolish unbelievers, it's the word morose. This is the Greek word from which we get the word moron. Someone who is ridiculous, ignorant, stupid, or contemptible. Paul is saying that those who do not believe in the message of the cross, those who think the message is foolish, are they themselves the foolish ones? He may even go so far as to say that they are ridiculous, ignorant, stupid, contemptible morons. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's not pulling any punches here at all. Now, why are they that way? Because they choose to wallow in the arrogance of their pride and unbelief. They choose their arrogance, pride, and unbelief. It's a choice. They seek the darkness so that their evil thoughts and deeds will not be exposed to the light of truth. Those who are perishing, those unbelievers, see the message of the cross as foolishness, but those who believe in the gospel see the message as what? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, But to us who are being saved, that's believers, the message of the cross is the power of God. And what does that mean? Once again, if we go back to John 3 and pick it up at verse 21, it says, But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. You might say that means done within the will of God. See here, John draws a distinction between those who perpetrate evil in darkness, unbelievers, and those who do the will of God in the light, which are believers. So one more time, back to 1 Corinthians 1, picking it up in verse 19. Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now that's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. I'm not going to ask you to turn there because it's just very brief. But in Isaiah 29:14, Isaiah mocks the failure of the so-called wise men of Jerusalem to come up with any workable solution, any workable plan or scheme to prevent the invasion of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Now, God allowed that to happen because the Israelites had turned away from him. 
And so Paul takes that concept here in 1 Corinthians, Isaiah's uh, concept from Isaiah 29. He takes that and he applies it to the concept of impotent schemes that unbelievers are trying to apply in their own limited humanistic wisdom as viable solutions for their bankrupt lives. He's mocking the arrogance and the foolishness of those that are bent on leaning on their own understanding rather than relying on the truth and wisdom of God. So what's the bottom line? What, what does this mean to us, really? It means that the message of the cross is central to God's plan for the redemption of humankind. It means that our individual salvation is dependent on our acceptance of the gospel message as truth. And it means that rejection of that message is in fact rejection of God's plan for our individual salvation. And frankly, that rejection is just plain foolishness. Each of us has to individually choose to accept Jesus. There aren't any Groupons to heaven. There's no all-inclusive family discount package to heaven. The gate is narrow, so we must enter one by one based on our choice to accept the free gift of grace. It means that the cross was not only the solution to the problem for sin, but it was the originally intended plan. The plan before creation, the plan before the fall. It was plan A, not plan B. Ephesians 1.4 says that He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, God, in love. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. So to understand this correctly, Before God created the world, before the sixth day when he created man, he knew that we would be tempted and fall out of grace by sin. God knew that we would mess things up. Even before he formed us into being, he knew. Our sin did not take God by surprise. In fact, he had a plan to deal with it even before it occurred. As the scripture says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1.5 says that we were predestined to be his children through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now think for a, a moment what that means in terms of the message about the cross. That Paul's speaking of. Each of us was chosen by our Creator before the world was made 
to be reconciled out of the bondage of sin by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross so that we could be with the Father because the Father loves us and wants us to be with him. See, I hope that's clear. If you only take one thing away from this part of the message, remember this. We have the responsibility to believe on Christ, to fully engage in that salvation process. It's a free gift, but it doesn't occur without our fulfilling our end of the deal, which is to believe on Him, to repent of sin, to turn away from sin, and to turn toward Christ. See, the message of the cross is that it doesn't depend on us. The message of the cross is that there is a plan, a plan that was put into motion before the fall of Lucifer and the angels, before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, before you or I took our first breath of air on this planet. Here's the point. The gift of your salvation was not an afterthought. God didn't sit stewing in heaven about how mankind had messed things up and then decide that his only option to get his wayward children back was to go to plan B. Plan B was not when God the Father went to God the Son and said, well, I guess somebody's going to have to clean up that mess down there and pay the price for all the damages. That's not how it occurred. God didn't mess up when he created us and then have to rethink everything that he created. God is not in heaven second-guessing himself. God is a God of second chances, but he is not a God of second guesses. His plan for our salvation is not the result of a miscalculation in the creation process. It was the plan all along. From the very foundation of the world. The cross was the plan from the very beginning. It was no accident. It was no second choice. The cross is the power and wisdom of God designed by God to bring him glory and honor. And if there were another way, would God have sacrificed his one and only son? Of course not. Let me see if I can make this um, more relevant to the season in which we are. We all know that just this past Friday marked the 14th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on America. If you were conscious and aware on September 11th, 2001... then each anniversary of that terrible date should hold some significance to you as an American and as a Christian. The images of that day never seem to fade away, and I think that's a good thing. Let me explain. We should never forget. As we watched in disbelief as American Airlines Flight 11... United Airlines Flight 175 
embedded themselves into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center. All at once, this nation realized that we were at war with an insidious foe, the likes of which we had only seen glimpses of in past terrorist events, most of which had occurred on foreign soil. We also witnessed that same tragic morning 14 short years ago, the vulnerability of the very nerve center of American military might. American Airlines Flight 77 was flown deliberately into the Pentagon, collapsing a large portion of the western side. And then we witnessed the heroic resolve of ordinary American citizens on a fourth plane that was forced into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, as the passengers on United Airlines Flight 93 fought back against Islamic terrorist hijackers for control of that aircraft. Now, most of us probably have memory reels that play in our heads each September 11th. For me, it's those images of desperate people jumping and falling from those towers. Or it's the people that were covered in dust and ash that emerged from the debris plodding down the streets of New York away from ground, ground zero. Those images are burned into my mind. And those of us who call ourselves Christian, who are indeed followers of Jesus Christ, have come to an even deeper realization concerning September 11th and the attacks on our nation. While the acts were carried out by Al-Qaeda, we understand that the war on terrorism is really a spiritual war with the powers and principalities that are mentioned in the 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans or in the 6th chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. In the years following September 11, 2001, this has become more and more evident. And this is the climate we find ourselves in today. The attacks on our liberties since those towers fell have been somewhat less dramatic, but equally tragic, I think. There is an eroding of our Constitution. There is an eroding of the moral fiber of our society. There is an assault on our freedoms of speech, the right to defend ourselves, a freedom of religion, uh, a war on the unborn, if you will, this seemingly unbridled spread of Islamic fascism, um, and I realize that the newsreels play and the genocide of Christians is occurring mostly in the Middle East, whole communities that have existed for 2,000 years, communities of Christians wiped off the face of the earth. And there's this unwillingness, I think, of our government to, to do anything when we have the resources and the ability to do something about it. That same threat is threatening to come across our borders. All of this is evidence of the rise of chaos in the world. 
And then there's the church. The universal church. For the most part, under attack by the demons of apathy and complacency. So what is a Christ follower to do? In the midst of this spiritual war, I'm reminded of the shortest verse in Scripture. John 11.35 says simply, Jesus wept. The context of this scripture is important and it's relevant as we remember September 11th and this collision course we seem to be on with our destiny as a nation and as individuals and as Christians. See, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus wept because of his love for Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha of Bethany. Lazarus had died and his sisters were deeply saddened and their sadness touched Jesus. And so he wept. This is significant. Because it demonstrates the very humanity, the humanness of Jesus. See, he didn't weep as Jesus Christ because as the Son of God, he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead and make him whole. No, he wept as the Son of Man, the completely human Jesus who felt the pain of human emotion and had compassion for the grief of Mary and Martha. See, the point is that our God knows the depth of our pain and suffering in the midst of all the worldly chaos because He's not a distant God. He's a close God, a God who has walked Every mile in our shoes to the point of death, even death on the cross. He shares our pain, our suffering, our sadness as one of us. There is no other religion where that has occurred. But see, he also knows that the victory is his. Because in the midst of all the darkness the world has to throw at us, even in the tragedy of September 11th, and all that has transpired since, our God reigns, our Savior lives, his will be done. He was lifted up on the cross so that the cross might lift up the world. And in the midst of the rubble and the chaos, there stands the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can take comfort in that. Lift high the cross, because the cross has lifted us out of the brokenness and the chaos Because the Lord, your God, has not forsaken you. And in the end, and you can read it right here, God wins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.